Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features Tucson Adventure. It's a look at the 80 years of Fritz Lieber's Pfeffert and the Grey Mauser, presenting our Jason Aiken and Morgan Holmes. The talk was recorded on August 15, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Morgan Holmes begins. The, uh, yeah, we're at the 80 years for Pofford and the Grey Mouser, and uh, one of the great sword and sorcery series in the history of the genre. Um, the uh, first issue was in Unknown, or technically Street and Smith's Unknown, in August 1939. And uh, this was about uh, five years after the, cre uh, the characters had been invented. And uh, that was in 1934. And actually, it wasn't Fritz Leiber who created the characters. It was um, Harry Fisher, a friend of his, sent him a letter. And uh, they began riffing off each other. And um, the, uh, it's interesting is, is Fisher was doing some writing. Leiber got there first. And uh, Weiber had uh, begun writing the, uh, the stories, uh, wrote a story called Adept's Gambit uh, in 1936, and it was rejected by Weird Tales. And uh, he, he passed it around, it went to Lovecraft, and I think some of the Lovecraft circle, Lovecraft had made some critique of it. Uh, and when Lovecraft died, uh, Weiber went back and did a rewrite, throwing in a bunch of Lovecraft mythos uh, references. And, uh, and then he, he said he then he took those back out. So there might be like three different versions of Adept's Gambit that were written. Um, what's interesting is that story, and, and who here has all read any uh, Fawford and the Grey Mouser? So you know, good number of people. Set in an imaginary world, new one. Um, well, the first story that was completed was set in uh, our world around 195 BC and in the Middle East. And, um, uh, actually, it starts out in, this, I think, the city of Tyre, if I remember correctly. And, uh, the, um, and then, you know, Nuon kind of got invented. And uh, I reread, uh, the, there's an essay by uh, Liber called Fawford and Me. I reread it last week. And um, he had heard about Unknown Magazine. And the, uh, I think the first issue was April, I think, 1939. Uh, the first story... Tucson Adventure came out in August of 39. So roughly about a six month uh, gap there, which seemed to be pretty common for pulp stories to uh, show up uh, between being bought and, and being printed. And uh, the, so I, you know, I don't know, maybe if Fiber had heard about Unknown before the first issue came out, or maybe he saw, generally pulps came out about a month earlier, so it probably would have been March of 1939. So, uh, but he had said that, uh, uh, you know, he took the silver bit into his mouth and began, you know, just started writing the stories. And um, on that, the, um, I'll kind of pass it over to Jason here to, to make some comments. Well, I, I think I read somewhere that whenever John W. Campbell Jr., who was the editor of Unknown at the time, um, would accept the Fawford and Gray Mouser stories, he'd say, well, this really should be in Weird Tales, but, and then he, he'd accept it, accept it anyway. Um, yeah, I, I think with uh, Unknown, uh, 
it kind of turned into my, my impression. I'm not a big fan of Unknown Magazine. Mm. There was there was a uh, few years ago a uh, panel on it, and you know my view is at the end of the day, Unknown is bewitched, and I dream a genie for the most part. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's kind of a um, modern day. You know, oh, we're so superior to magic or the supernatural. You know, isn't this funny? Ha ha ha, type thing. Uh, but as a friend of mine who published a magazine once said, he said, a magazine is a ravenous beast that has to be fed. And so I think Campbell mm -hmm. uh, was taking in anything he could get of a certain level to, to keep the, you know, the magazine filled up. And I'm not sure if he meant it to be like a Thorne Smith. A Thorne Smith was a uh, popular writer in the 30s who wrote Topper and other humorous fantasies. Actually, a real, real big influence on L. Sprague de Camp. And El Sprague de Camp was probably the biggest writer for Unknown. Uh, the, uh, on the other hand, um, I would say if there's one influence on Liber with the Fawford and the Gray Mouse stories, it's probably James Branch Cabell, and, uh, though a pulp version of that. But I think you know, uh, you know, uh, Campbell might have wanted a magazine, not really like a Thorne Smith type thing, but something, you know, his logical supernatural, but it just never really quite panned out. And uh, for that, but the uh, uh, yeah the stories started coming out. Uh, Liber did say he did submit them to Weird Tales. It would have been Dorothy McGillwright, but um, Weird Tales had gone um, bi-monthly in the beginning of 1940, and the page count was down. And so you know a lot of the fantastic adventure type fiction just wasn't in the magazine anymore. Here's just some. Artwork from Tucson Adventure from the August 1939 issue of Unknown. Um. That's interesting. I reread that story last week, and there's no mention. Fawford is always uh, drawn with a beard many times. Mm -hmm. Liber never mentions a beard, <laughs> and this has him clean shaven. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they, it's funny. When you think about Fawford and the Grey Mouse, or you usually think about the Sword series, but you know the theme to the convention this year is the Children of the Pulps. Um, you know they came from the they they're just another set of characters that start got their start in the Pulps. Um, what what do you think of just kind of the overall theme of their early pulp? stories uh, that were in the unknown. Well, it's what's interesting. I, I did a spreadsheet of the appearances, and Liber didn't crank these out. About one story per year. There's one story from 39, one from 40, one from 41, one from 42, one from 43. Uh, they're definitely um, grimmer mm -hmm. in tone, um, and uh, the... Uh, Darker, yeah, especially uh, the bleak shore and the howling uh, tower and the sunken land. They're almost like vignettes, mood pieces, mm -hmm. and you're a little bit more violent than what um, Liber would be later on. And then there were two stories in Digest magazines, uh, Dark Vengeance um, in Suspense and Fall of 51 and the Seven Black Priests and Other Worlds. And uh, Dark Vengeance, which was also, uh, I think in the paperback, it's called Claws in the Night, um, very, very pulpy. You know, you, ha you had the sorceress using the birds to attack mm -hmm. uh, women in Lankmar, and Fawford and the Grey Mouser kind of uh, figure it out. Um, I think the other thing I'll point out is, is previously, sword and sorcery, you had uh, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, they were country boys. Their stories are kind of rural. Liber 
is urban fantasy. And I happened to think about it. You know, Lankmar is essentially Chicago in the 1930s. You know, it's corrupt. It's gangster-ridden. It's it's uh, a uh, you know it's very urban, and I think that's why it was set later on such a huge influence on D and D. Very much so. I I also read that uh, a big influence for Liber and Lankmar was, I think he Liber was at some Hollywood party. And there were people there, like um, Johnny Weissmuller was there. Um, I think it was actually like at John Barrymore's house. And he was kind of listening to the conversations between, you know, all, all of the actors. And the Grey Mouser already existed at this point, but not, ex but not no one exactly. And he just, he said he thought to himself, oh, Grey Mouser, you would really thrive in all, all of this chaos. And uh, there's there was also a quote that um, he he kind of uses that as an example. Like in his mind, fantasy should always be kind of fed with a little bit of reality in that way. So I, I thought that was kind of hmm. interesting. Yeah, something I noted also is um, something that really kind of set sword and sorcery fiction off was the ingredient of cosmic horror. Uh, yeah, I think Robert E. Howard really hit his stride when he began corresponding with H.P. Lovecraft. It's like some things clicked. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, his Liber corresponded with Lovecraft in Lovecraft's last year, year and a half of his life. But yet, the Fawford and the Grey Mouser stories really don't have that cosmic horror aspect mm -hmm. at all. I mean, it, no. it, uh, you, know, you, you, you really get it with, you know, even like Kuttner with the mm -hmm. Elak of Atlantis stories. You know, there's just a certain idea that there's these malevolent gods and a malevolent universe out there. And uh, you really don't get that with Liber. You know, there's no. just this over-foreboding doom that, that's always just, you know, behind the curtain. Right. I thought he was going in that direction with the bleak shore at first. Like, yeah. Kind of like a Robert W. Chambers type of vibe with that. But then it, it turned out not, not really to be cosmic horror. But um, do you think... Um, Fawford and the Grey Mouser kind of found their footing during the fan during like the Digest area. The Digest area yeah, was I, fantastic. Yeah, definitely the series changed. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the the uh, Liber came back. There had been a six year gap uh, between the last uh, story in the early fifties, and then Lean, Lean Times and Lankmar came out in the November nineteen fifty nine uh, issue of uh, Fantastic. And it was Sela uh, Lally, or Sela Goldsmith, who pretty much coaxed him back into writing him. And uh, yeah, I'd read that, you know, Liber was, has been pretty, was pretty much up front that he had some battles with the bottle a few times. Mm -hmm. and, I, you know, and I wondered that six-year gap, if that was one of those periods, because if you ever look at his bibliography, you'll see these gaps. And uh, the, um, you know, and I just wonder if, if in the mid-50s there, you know, if he had a bout of the alcoholism and then came back. You know, and the stories were definitely lighter in tone, uh, you know, much less uh, traditional sword and sorcery and much more back to the James Branch Cable. Um, who knows, maybe, maybe Jack Vance's The Dying Earth kind mm -hmm. of spurred him in that direction of a little bit lighter tone. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, there's people that really like Lean Times and Lankmar. Um, El Sprague de Camp like When the Sea King's Away to reprint it, I think, in uh, Sword and Sorcery, the very first sword and sorcery anthology. That came out. You know, Skilla's daughter is lighter, mm -hmm. though you, you get a little bit of a, a dark, 
at a couple stories. The Unholy Grail, which is which is the Grey Mouser origin story. I remember mm-hmm. that being kind of brutal in spots. Mm-hmm. And then there was a vignette, uh, The Cloud of Hate from 1963. And it just, you know, it, it's just pretty much... Uh, Offered in the Grey Mouser, just mowing guys down there to coming at them. Right. You know, they're, they're like possessed and, you mm-hmm. know, the, uh, on that. And it's interesting that period in the early 60s, uh, Liber kind of had a little burst of activity. There's, there was a period where, like, in, you actually had two stories in 1963, followed up with The Lord of, Lord of Carmel, uh, which was Lords of Carmel, which Harry Fisher had started and never finished. And then Liber finished it, and that was a two-parter in Fantastic in 64. So he, uh, and then there was actually in 1970, two stories in one, uh, one year. But, uh, you know, Liber pretty much, you know, even at his best, was one story per year. You know, he just didn't write him out. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if sometimes that the characters were distant to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always sometimes think about, you know, maybe it's the fact he didn't create the characters. You know, he kind of had a part in, in the formation of their personality but you know the names and kind of their initial de- description was Harry Fisher right. uh, for that at the um, yeah and I think in the late 60s he had another bout with the bottle because he was he planned on writing a history of fantasy and he said you know, I think it was in the mid 70s that you know he, he had a bout of alcoholism and never wrote it and uh, yeah you just read stuff like that and you just uh, think, oh, yeah, uh, what was lost? Because, you know, Liber was an, a very astute critic. Um, I don't know if you ever read his uh, book reviews, like in the issues of Fantastic from uh, the 70s. And he never really pans a book bad. He always tries to find something nice to say. And, you know, never never had a bad thing to say. He was nice to me. I wrote to him in 1984 and, you know, a little fan letter, and he sent me back a little postcard. And, you know, so he was, he was you know, always very known for just just a, a, a real guy. What, what do you think of the S.W.O.R.D. series and um, the way that they're traditionally collected these days in chronological order? as opposed to, you know, publication order? Well, the thing is, is they weren't, um, the first one wasn't the first one to be published. It's like, it was kind of like mid-series. Right, I believe uh, Swords of the Mist may have Yeah, I think that first. was the first yeah. one. So they kind of came in and, and it kind of gave a chance for Liber to do some filler material mm-hmm. uh, to fill that in. I think it worked pretty good. I mean, it, it uh, you know, it, it was a case of uh, not somebody else arbitrarily you know, figured, wow, this is, this is the way the saga is going to be, and this is how we're going to arrange it. You know, it was Liber uh, pretty much doing it. You know, and you had Jeff Jones really getting into his peak right there. Uh, though I, I've always liked the Michael Whalen cover for Swords and Dark Magic, or Ice Magic. Mm-hmm. And uh, Swords and Dark Magic is, is a not very good anthology from around 10 years ago. Don't buy it. Don't read it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, that might be the most iconic image of Fawford and the Mouser. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was in college and it was in the early 80s and there was a guy in the dorm and I remember he had he had all the Elric books from Daw Books with the Michael Whalen covers and then he had the Fawford and the Green Mouse and I remember looking at that and and that that image, I seen that image before I ever read any of the stories and so the Michael Whalen image is is what's in my mind it stuck with you yeah it, it's oh, pretty okay. much the uh when i reread the stories last <clears throat> week uh from uh, swords against death i mean michael whalen's uh portrayal was what was in my mind except for a clean shaven uh fawford right 
What do you think of Ilmet and Lankmar? Uh, it was published in 1970. Um, it's the shows the first teaming up of Fawford and the Mouser. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting that it won. Uh, it, yeah, won the Hugo. The, yeah, the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award for that 1971. Um, is, I, is that thought of as a sword and sorcery? Well, yeah, I, I, I always like to joke that Fawford and the Green Mouser is sword and sorcery for people who don't like sword and sorcery. Uh, I don't know how many times you know, you'll read some science fiction writers and well, I normally don't like sword and sorcery, but you know, I do like Fritz Leiber and Fawford and the Gray Mouser. And uh, so, I, I, but I think a lot of that was, was Fritz was just a well-liked guy. And, you know, and he was, he, was uh, you know, uh, he had written for Galaxy a lot. And you know, from what I've read about Horace Gold at Galaxy, if you could write for him, you, know, you, you pretty much could write for anybody. So yeah, I think Fritz had had street cred in the science fiction community. It's a downer of a story. I mean, you read the ending and it's like whoa, whoa. and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and right, yeah, and, and again, it's it's Fritz Leiber mixing it up. I mean, you might have a lighter story, uh, like you know the two best thieves in Lankmar, and then you got Ilmet in Lankmar, and you know their girlfriends both get murdered, mm -hmm. and uh, you know it, it's um, a uh, yeah, real real downer of a story. He, uh, the series seems to be pretty well received. Uh, the Snow Women also got nominated for Best Novella for the Hugo Award that same year, 1971. Uh, 1966, Stardog Star got nominated. Um, 63, Unholy Grail. 62, Scylla's Daughter. Uh, as far as Nebula Awards go, 1971, The Snow Women again. Yeah, it's um, interesting. It, you know, kind of. Um... Kind of, it, it fits a, in. That's a prequel too. That's another yeah. prequel, you know. It fits in with with the rebirth of sword and sorcery in the early '60s. You know, when uh, supernatural fiction began, it be, began to be an interest in again. You had the magazine of horror got started up. Uh, you know, you began getting uh, uh, you know some horror paperbacks published. Uh, the gothic romance even, and uh, L. Sprague de Camp in 1963 with Pyramid Books had uh, Swords and Sorcery, the very first Sword and Sorcery anthology. And so, you know, it just seemed to be after a, a good, hard uh, 10 to 15 years of science fiction, you know, there, there was just this wheel turning. You know, it was like Tarzan came back in paperback, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Doc Savage. So there was, it was like a, like a uh, cultural shift in the early 60s. Mm. And uh, Sword and Sorcery wasn't quite so hated, I guess, in the early 60s then. And even uh, even going into like you know the late '70s and 1978, Swords and Ice Magic was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Collection and Anthology. And then nearly ten years later, 1989, The Knight and Knave of Swords was nominated for, as, for the Best Collection um, for the World Fantasy Award. It seems like just through the decades, Fawford and the Gray Mouse have kind of stood the test of time. Well, and also, Weiber was racking up a lot of nominations. I think, was it uh, Catch That Zeppelin was nominated in the mid-'70s. And I remember reading a, uh, a lit crit piece on Weiber, and Weiber was writing very good fiction much later in life than most science fiction writers from his period had pretty much peaked much earlier. So he, uh, he had a little more staying power. And... Um, yeah, and, and some people, they're not so crazy about the later stories. They, they begin seeing a falling off. 
but I think you know part of it is just you know people kind of wanted to uh, have Fritz Leiber get appreciated while he was alive, mm -hmm. and uh, you know because he uh, let's see he died in '92, so you know so just you know three years after that last uh, World Fantasy Award nomination, you know he passed off this mortal coil. So it, it just, yeah, I think a lot of people just wanted to, uh, uh, you know, make it known that, hey, you know, you're, you're a living legend and, you know, you're appreciated. And I think it goes back to, he was just a well-liked guy that, uh, that I, I heard a story Don Heron told me, though, one time that um, uh, Lynn Carter was going on and on about Watership Down. He said, it's about rabbits, rabbits. I can't believe it. It's about rabbits. And, and uh, it was, there was a group discussing it, and, and Fritz Leiber just said, idiot. So, <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> so. But, yeah, Leiber's, I, I would love to see Leiber's nonfiction all collected together is, is uh, various uh, book reviews and essays because there's just a lot there. I mean, he was just a very, very perceptive guy. And after, um, after Leiber's books, there's really only one other author that's written Fawford and the Mouser, and that's um, Robin Wayne Bailey, Swords Against the Shadowland. Um, Which I have not read. Same, same year. I, I got a thing about pastichery, <laughs> as Dave would, would, would attest. <laughs> I guess it takes place in between Swords and Devil Tree and um, Swords Against Death, where, okay, on, yeah. where it's like partially the same time where they're doing the circle curse mm -hmm. when they first leave. That's for, from my understanding, but that, that didn't come out too long ago, though, maybe within the last 10, 10 years, I think. Um, but yeah, do you, Got any more to add about um, the, sto the stories? Or? Uh, not really. It just you know it's, it's it's unusual in that you had a um, you know going from 1939 to the 1980s. Right. Yeah, you know, I can remember 1983 picking up uh, down at Ides when it was on the north side of Pittsburgh. Uh, the uh, heroic fantasy or heroic visions. There was a heroic fantasy anthology from Ace Books, edited by Jessica Amanda Salmonson, and on the cover was. Fawford and the Gray Mouser. I mean, that was a coup. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was a legend, and I'm thinking, oh wow, you know, I immediately bought that book. So, I mean, uh, you know, Liber, uh, you know, even in the '80s, had a lot of, you know, and I think he added a lot of weight to when Lynn Carter was doing the Flashing Sword series, oh, right. getting him to, you know, mm -hmm. Jack Vance and DeCamp and Moorcock. I mean, you know, uh, my view of that that series is kind of a little a little bit past their prime, mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, but still. Um, you know, he got Liber to uh, produce some stories for that series. And outside of like, the original stories, like the characters, they, they just continued to live on. Here's just a couple, you know, tabletop games. This is, uh, this is one that, uh, from what I understand, Fritz Liber and Harry Otto Fisher actually had a hand in writing. Yeah. yeah, very 1970s. <laughs> and then they went into Dungeons and Dragons supplements. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a uh, role-playing game guy, but I think those are pretty. Those are a big improvement over that last cover. Um, looks like RuneQuest. They, they, there were some RuneQuest supplements. 
and Savage Worlds. This looks fairly, fairly recent. It looks like they put out some supplements. And Goodman Games put out a, a Lankmar supplement for their Dungeon Crawl Classics line there. Yeah, when you get to Lankmar stories, I mean, that's Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you know, it, it's dark, it, it's gothic. Uh, you know, you have the Thieves Guild. Yeah, I'm thinking, what, you know, what kind of what kind of government is there that tolerates a thieves' guild? You know, you think any any uh, king or prince would have the gendarmerie going out with the pole arms and you know beheading the thieves? But um, like I said, it, it, it's 1930s Chicago, and uh, the um, uh, yeah, Liber, uh It was a Gary Gygax, uh, was it that you know he actually paid some sort of stipend to Liber later in life for you know because he was just such a huge important. Uh, uh, influence on Dungeons and Dragons, you know, and probably the most important of a really, if you look at any of the earlier first wave of sword and sorcery writers, you know, Liber. And the other thing is, is you know, when Ace Books brought those paperbacks out, they kept those in print pretty much up through the uh, mid or late 80s. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could pretty much always go to a bookstore or hit a couple bookstores. I mean, I, I read those back in 1983, and it took me um, two bookstores. Yeah, I got three at one and three at another, and I had all six of the books at the time. And so they were constantly in print. And uh, yeah, that's back in the day. I mean, you could go to a Walden Books or B. Dalton Bookseller, and you could get the Conan books. Uh, Jarella Joyry by Seal uh, Moore was in print. Uh, Timescape had done three Clark Ashton Smith paperbacks. Uh, Fawford the Gray Mouser was in print. Um, Carl Edward Wagner's Kane series. I mean, you could go in and in very short order get a um, foundational bookshelf of heroic fantasy put together pretty quick. You know, 12-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid can't do that today, going to Barnes & Noble. And from, uh, from the gaming, they also appeared in comic books. Uh, DC did a five-issue miniseries titled uh, Sword of Sorcery, where Fawford and the Mouser appeared in. Uh, Denny O'Neill wrote it. Howard Chaikin and Walt Simonson did the art. Um, it was fairly loose adaptations, and they really only had 32 pages to work with, so they kind of had to do the best with what they had. I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, Fawford kind of has the appearance of Sean Connery from Zardoz, <laughs> but with uh, red hair. I, I didn't spot that till like my second read through, and then after that, that's all I saw was. Well, that was uh, yeah. DC Comics, uh, they they uh, in the wake of Marvel Comics with their success of Conan the Barbarian in comic book form, they just like rushed in and just threw everything against the wall, like they had like Iron Jaw, and uh, I mean just all. Uh, I think the Warlord was the one that lasted the longest, mm -hmm. but yeah, Swords of Sorcery didn't last very long. Um, there's one I think with a guy with like a, a withered hand or something, like claw, yeah, claw, and uh, and then there was a wolf. I mean, but there was like about five different titles that they they. That's right. Yeah, Atlas was also into it. Also, yeah, I get the two confused. Uh, but yeah, DC didn't do too well with their sword and sorcery titles. It was like right around 1974, 75. That they, uh, you know, it's like, hey, Marvel is like doing this barbarian stuff, and you know, and it was about, I think, about '74, where Conan the Barbarian was really started taking off. DC took notice, and 
So Fawford and the Bay Gray Mouser was all part of that and kind of probably got dragged down by the bad product by DC at the time. Then following up on that, some years later, Howard Chaikin uh, wrote a series for Epic. They were four 48-page prestige format miniseries, so they had a little bit more room to work with. And I think as a result, the, ap the adaptations were a little bit better. Uh, Mike Mignola did the artwork. Um, Dark Horse, evidently, they have the, the reprint rights to both because they put out two collections fairly recently, uh, The Cloud of Hate and just Fawford and the Gray Mouser. Um, they've also appeared in comic book pastiche. Um, the two guys on the left are from Roy Thomas's run of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, the one on the left's a black rat, and the guy on the right is uh, Fafner. Uh, they're kind of, they're more antagonistic towards Conan than they are allies. Um, the guys on the right are actually from Bill Willingham's uh, Fables book. They appear for two issues. Uh, they're Freddy and Mouse, respectively. Uh, they basically wake up the big bad for the second arc. They let, they let loose like a dark sorcerer that was all um, chained up and they basically caused problems basically caused problems for the whole comic after that. Um, they've also, they've had a brief appearance in video games. Uh, this is the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. It's a pretty popular video game. Uh, like Lankmar, this world also has a Thieves Guild. And the Thieves Guild is located in a town called Riften. And as the player, you have to try to break into the Thieves Guild. And when you're doing that, you run into Draft and Hemnon, Blackseeker. And, you know, Draft's pretty much a anagram of Fawford. And the Black Skeever is actually, you know, the Gray Mouser. And Hunan is basically an anagram of Noan. So those two are in there. You get to basically kill them when you're trying to break into the... Thieves Guild, and really the last place to go for Fawford and the Mouser really is the motion picture. Um, I just picked these two guys at random from Game of Thrones. I don't know. I don't know what you guys think, but the, the guy on the left looks okay. The guy on the right would have to shave his beard, I think, a little bit, but okay. And, Oh, it's a shame that the guy that could have adapted Fawford and the Grey Mouser to celluloid would have been George MacDonald Frazier. He was the guy who would have had the flair to, uh, you know, if you were to do Fawford and the Grey Mouser in t TV or whatever, I mean, you have to have a certain panache to it. And I, I just don't know if that could be done today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going through Goodreads a few days ago and, and uh, somebody was complaining about all the sexism. So even Fritz Leiber, who was... Uh, you know, pretty liberal guy at the time, you know, he's being accused of sexism now, so, you know, I don't know if you, you probably have an adulterated Fawford and the Grey Mouse, or maybe they'll make him, one of them a woman or something. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, in, any thoughts on, from a historical perspective, uh, their legacy on, you know, on literature, popular fiction in general? Well, definitely, um, Library was different from Robert E. Howard. And I think that's an important thing. You know, you had some of the, after Howard died, you know, various attempts to imitate him. 
and they didn't work well. You know, Weiber just kind of did his own thing. It's like we were talking about, you know, he kind of, when, when he wrote them, he said, they're not going to be Conan, they're not going to be Joseph Samothrace, they're going to be, like we had talked about, uh, more an everyman mm -hmm. uh, type deal. Uh, you know, hugely important in gaming. And, and I think the, the other important thing is Weiber was just there um, at a very important time, like in the late end of the 50s, early 60s, helped, you know, reignite sword and sorcery fiction. You know, writing new stories and stories that weren't, you know, Drogar, the barbarian, you know, with his, uh, you know, magic sword. I mean, it, it uh, you know, these are uh, erudite. I, I mean, I like the grimmer stories myself. Some of the humor falls flat with me and some of the banter. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, but, uh, you know, the, these are definitely better written than a lot of the stuff out there. And like I said, I think the other thing is Fritz Leiber was just very well liked. Mm -hmm. And that brought a lot of goodwill in general to the genre. There also seems to be kind of a, a trope created as a result that, um, like, pairs of buddy adventurers. Yeah, it seems to be with Dungeons out. and Dragons, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of have the ensemble. And, right. and, and so you kind of have this, you know, you have the, the beginning of the ensemble uh, group. And I know David Dre of Weird Book was complaining, you would like to get good sword and sorcery fiction. And people keep sending him Dungeons and Dragons fiction. He said, "This is not what I want." <laughs> and and same with the the setting of you know Lankmar. Um, I don't know your thoughts on it. Do you think the Thieves World series of paperbacks? Oh, without a doubt, was um, you know influenced by yeah. Robert Lynn Aspirin mentioned mm -hmm. that about you know of me all having the you know something where you. Yeah, you, know, you might have Conan coming in from some misadventure. You got Fawford and the Gray Mouser and various other characters uh, in there. I mean, it, yeah, the, and Thieves' World was a hugely popular series in the '80s. I mean, in fact, I think it kind of sucked some of the oxygen out of the air. Oh, right. uh, I mean, I mean, they're just those books were just coming out at a pretty regular clip, and yeah, I forget how many there were, but that was a you know. Yeah, you know, just seemed to be right about the time you had the collapse of the sword and sorcery paperback market. Thieves' World was just really that and the Tor Conan pastiches. That was the other one that helped kill the genre. Okay. Anything else, Dan? Or want to open it up for hmm. questions? Anybody, you know, hurl insults or. <laughs> what? <laughs> And we will, we will say one other thing about Liber. Um, as Morgan stated, he he felt that uh, Fawford and the Gray Mouse were, were to be more like you know everyday Joes rather than like Conan and Tarzan. Um, but Liber did write a canonical Tarzan novel that's now out uh, paperback for the first time. Tarzan in the Valley of Gold. It's actually. Um, this is the first time it's at Pulp Fest. You can get it. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated has a table. They're selling them. Christopher Paul Carey, he'll sell you a copy if you're interested. And, yeah. You know, we, we could just see that the people running are idiots. Um, you know, I, I mean, you look at the 2011 movie, and you know, you had this uh, German 
uh, video director who doesn't make very good movies. They make a deal with Lionsgate, which is you know like the Golden and Globus of the 21st century, and uh, you know they, they you know it's like yeah you you made a crappy movie. This is a big surprise here. Uh, it, it it just seems to be that uh, you know they just make bad decisions. You know you had back um, you know the classic one in the 70s. I just read Barbarian Life by Roy Thomas, and Roy wanted to adapt the El Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter stories, and he'd be negotiating, negotiating, negotiating. They would just about get things hammered out, and De Camp would throw something else in and just throw in the monkey wrench. And so as a result, you had like uh, none of the De Camp and Carter stories adapted for. Oh, close to 10 years. So it just seems to be a lot of bad things. Uh, Dave and I were friends with Glenn Lord. Yeah, and Glenn was treated very shabbily uh, by the copyright holders. And it just seems to be, you know, uh, I, I don't know if it's ill-gotten gold or, or a curse or what. I mean, yeah, you, you just think it, um, you know, and I'm at the point now, that ship is, is, is done. I don't think you could do a... Robert E. Howard, let alone even just even, even a Gardner Fox Kothar, uh, you know, between the violence and you know the in the bucks and wenches, I mean, it's just uh, we're we're in a different world now, where uh, you know maybe Kothar would get a sex change operation or something, and you know, and you have the the plucky 125 pound warrior woman beating the crap out of a 250 pound man, you know, that's that's how movies are right now, but but the um, you know. Frederick Malmberg of uh, Cabinet is what they're calling it. That seems to be a nice enough guy, but uh, uh, you know some bad decisions have been made, and you know it's it's um, I don't know. Having seen people run businesses into the ground, it's just hard to shake somebody and say, "Don't make this decision." They just they double down all the more and say, "Oh, I'm going to do this then," and you know so it's it's. Uh, but yeah, you had a crappy movie in 2011 that you know it figuratively poisoned the well for another generation. So, and then you got these guys that were 12 years old in 1982 that can't let go of Chip Rommel playing Conan, and uh, they just can't let. I mean, I mean, the guy gets freakier looking every year, and he was freaky looking to me. Um, yeah, my view in the original movie, he looked like a yeah, he did a really good imitation of a befuddled side of beef, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and uh, it, it's just, um, yeah, I, I just don't have much hope. I mean, you know, uh, from what I've been hearing, the Marvel comics aren't very good. Uh, you know, so it, it's, um, I don't know, it, it just, I, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of in that dark period again for sword and sorcery fiction. And, uh, you know, maybe in 20, 30 years, I'll be an old man, maybe it'll come back, but... Um, yeah, it was a little bit of rebirth in, in the, the small press and the like. There's some people out there, but I noticed recently the more recent stuff. Uh, uh, read a small press anthology, and yeah, I, I detect the uh, influence of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Everything's ironic. And uh, did anybody get the impression like when Weird Tales was taken away from Skithers and Schweitzer, the Vandermeers had it. It all seemed to be irony. Yeah, and I was almost like unknown. It was just a lot of of. Uh, Weird Tales just became about, oh, we're so clever, this is so ironic, and it really wasn't Weird Tales, and I haven't had a chance to see the brand new issue, see where it's going, but I'm not holding out much hope on it, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, it, it just, bad decisions with, with, with the Conan stuff, and, you know, the thing is, is, teenage boys like to see lots of blood, 
You know, as a friend of mine put it, sword and sorcery is about the violence in the titties. And you, you would think Game of Thrones might sort of lead a little bit to yeah. the direction because there's certainly plenty of violence. Yeah. And it certainly entered popular culture. It yeah. Product. Yeah, and you and you might see that now. People might start looking around and uh, you know, I mean it certainly has been I mean my sister in law watched Game of Thrones. I never seen an episode. You know, I read the first four books and then I was done. But yeah, she was telling me all about the last season. Uh, she was up in Florida and, and filled me in. And you know, my, my brother-in-law was watching it. You know, and Jack is, is a guy that uh, likes to drink Budweiser beer and shoot woodchucks. And you know, that's uh, uh, the oh, he does. Well, his, he likes to go down to Florida. And he stays with my sister-in-law. He goes, he got, became friendly with farmers and they got a problem with feral hawks. And Jack goes out with a 223 rifle, a, a uh, case of Budweiser in the cooler. He has his launcher in the back of his pickup truck and he shoots wild hogs. Then he has a group of Mexicans he calls up and they come up and get the, get the carcasses and a few days later they drop off sausage to him. So, uh, you know, he watches Game of Thrones and was telling me all about uh, uh, Game of Thrones. So, I mean, he goes to show the, the depth of cultural penetration. So, yeah, you know, maybe we'll see, but, um, uh, you know, whether we'll get back to like, like a good ad adaptation of Sword and Sorcerer, like a Fawford and a Grey Mouse, or it remains, like I said, you'd need a writer with panache to bring it off. Conan the Barbarian, 2011. It did some things right. There are a lot of things it did wrong. I mean, the, 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 historically, it's a mess. And I'm a little bit of a stickler for historical accuracy. And, I mean, you've got Solomon Cain, who's a Puritan, who's at a Catholic uh, monastery to begin with. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of flunking religion 101 right there. And, uh, I mean, I, th I thought, um, I'm drawing a blank on the guy who played it. I thought it did a great job. And yeah, pure point. Yeah, he, he played it great. I mean, he'd be great. Uh, the used to films being so bad that are coming from properties I like, you know, comics or, or prose or whatever. Yeah. I'll accept anything that's at least half well done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were problems with it, but, you know, the half. Yeah, sometimes you've got to turn off three quarters of your brain and just kind of, you know, sit no, back and enjoy it. You know, I'm going to just, you know, smile a little bit. Yeah. Dave? Is, is there a definitive edition of the Fawford's book? I realize with libraries living so long, it's like some of these authors who had people come out from the back who would expurgate or edit down or produce crappy versions of them after the fact. As I'm aware, no. Um, you know, well, one thing is, is Don Wolheim brought out the paperbacks, you know, and you know, Don Wolheim, as you and I know, did some great retitling. Yeah, I love his retitling. You know, somebody once said about, you know, the, uh, if he redid the, the Old Testament would be, uh, was it the God of the Flaming Bush? And the, uh, and, and the New Testament would be you know, the curse of the three-headed God or something like that. Um, but the, uh, you know, Wolheim, you know, kind of shepherded those, those books in, in print. And uh, as far as I'm aware, they've never been tampered with. That seems to be a Robert E. Howard thing of the tampering. You just don't see that much outside. The Burroughs had that happen to a certain degree, Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, but yeah, as far as I know with the Liber, um, you know, you pick up one of the newer paperbacks, it's going to be the same as a Digester pulp version.
You know, I, I'm not even aware of Weiber going back and rewriting outside of Adef's Gambit. I heard Carl Edward Wagner's name mentioned in this discussion. Well, yeah, Wagner's great. I mean, he... He, um, he came after Weiber, and I thought it wasn't just rehashing. Yeah, he, 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 he was unique. You know, it, it um, yeah, exchanged a few letters with him. And he was another guy, just super guy and nice and the like. And... Uh, um, Sometimes we get a little bit bitter uh, in some of his nonfiction stuff. And if you ever read a story called Neither Brute Nor Human, you know, and it's about two fictional writers, one's a horror writer and the other's a fantasy writer, you know, he just kind of gets all his, his bio out about the publishing business. Anybody else? Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.